it's an instrument, it's speaking about Israel or about the country uh, through food. Um, not only using food to meet people or to, you know, as a background for a conversation as, as diplomats, but also using the food itself to speak about the history, uh, the culture, to show how great a country is through its food. Hi, and welcome to The Big Schmear. I'm your host, Beth Schenker, and today I'm welcoming Moran Berman, Consul for Public Diplomacy and the Consulate General of Israel to the Midwest. He was appointed to his Chicago-based post in 2016. As a Consul for Public Diplomacy, his portfolio includes the areas of media, culture, and the Jewish communities in all nine states of the Midwest region. And most importantly, for our purposes today, when Moran isn't working, he is a foodie and enjoys all aspects of dealing with food. So now you know exactly why he's here to talk with me about Israel and culinary diplomacy, a topic that I personally find really interesting. So it turns out food can be serious stuff. Hi, Moran. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Why don't we start with having you tell me a little bit about your position with the consulate and what you've done in your professional career to get to this place or why you chose to be in this place? So I actually started as a lawyer back in Israel. I went to law school and I became a lawyer in Israel. And I felt like I want to do more. I was not very happy with being a lawyer. It wasn't interesting and exciting enough. It wasn't a challenge in the way I wanted it. And I felt like I want to make a difference, want to influence uh, things that are happening, you know, in the in my environment or, or the place around me. And so I decided to try and join the Israeli Foreign Service. The way it works in Israel is a little bit different than other places. So what uh, uh, we do, what they do at the Foreign Ministry is that anyone can apply, no matter what's your background, as long as you have a degree in something. So I have friends at the foreign ministry who are lawyers or teachers or engineers, and they just check your skills. And I was uh, lucky to get accepted to the Israeli foreign ministry, and I became a diplomat about uh, five years ago. And my first position was in Philadelphia, and three years ago I moved to Chicago. What I do as a consul of public diplomacy, I'm part of a team of three diplomats at the consulate here. We cover nine states, and I'm dealing with public diplomacy, meaning I'm dealing more with speaking about Israel or talking about Israel or presenting Israel to the general public. I work less with elected officials, and I work more with the community, with the media. Uh, we bring Israeli culture here, and we try to speak about Israel in different kinds of ways, which is actually diplomacy the way I see it. That sounds really cool. And, and as we were talking just before we started this recording, you say you get to travel a lot. That means you get to taste food all over the place, right? Yeah, so one of the reasons I wanted to join the foreign ministry is because I love to travel. So in Israel, many people, when they finish their military service, they go for a long trip sometimes in India, sometimes in South America, sometimes in other parts of the world. They go for anywhere from two or three or six months or sometimes a year. And anyone 
who goes to places like Buenos Aires or uh, Delhi or even Australia, New Zealand can meet many Israelis, all of them at the same age of 21, 22, because they all finished their very intense service and they went to far away places. So I also did it. I went to Australia, New Zealand and Southeast Asia. I went to Thailand and Myanmar and Laos. And then I fell in love, so to speak, with traveling. Of course, food was a big part of it, but also traveling. And then since then, I went again to uh, Thailand, Vietnam. I went to Central America and I went another one more time to Thailand and I went to Turkey and to uh, Mexico and to many other places. So I also love to travel. And of course, I think food is a very important part of traveling. So being a diplomat was also based on my love of traveling, meeting new people, new cultures, uh, getting to know new countries. Uh, so I think it's a, it's a good fit. It sounds like it. It sounds like you're having lots of fun at your work, which is a really important thing. You want to be passionate about what you do. I thought maybe I would just give a formal definition for culinary diplomacy for those people who have never heard those two words together and maybe aren't sure what we're talking about. And then you can let me know if that sort of fits with how you think about it or not. So according to Wikipedia, culinary diplomacy, sometimes referred to as gastro-diplomacy, the basic premise is that the easiest way to win hearts and minds is through the stomach. And I don't know that I can argue with that. This can also be called soft diplomacy. And in this instance, specifically a way of bringing Israel and other nations together in a common bond. Sitting and eating a meal together is a way that government leaders can relax and talk about mutual issues. By sharing food, it helps with the message and makes a difference in the way people perceive the values of the Jewish state or any state. It helps others gain a better understanding of the history of the land. That's a lot to think about. Does that sound pretty much how you define it yourself or the consulate? Yes. Yeah, so first of all, I didn't know it's on Wikipedia. <laughs> uh, I thought it's just a term that, you know, me and other people had in mind when they're doing diplomacy, so to speak. So diplomacy is a very old profession and people usually are looking at it as something very formal and of, uh, you know, diplomats meeting uh, um, the, the government and the executives and, and the very stay in very high society and work only with the leaders. And diplomacy recently, it's been, I think, a process of a few decades, um, is changing. And a diplomat cannot only speak to the president or prime minister or minister or governor or whatever he has or she to speak with the public. One of the ways that we see it today is social media. So we have a social media page at, at the consulate. I have a personal, many diplomats, uh, and not only Israelis, obviously, uh, use it a lot. And this is a way to speak to the general public. And I think that leads us to culinary diplomacy, which, as I see it, it's, it's an instrument. It's speaking about Israel or about the country uh, through food, um, not only using food to meet people or to, you know, as a background for a conversation as, as diplomats, but also using the food itself to speak about the history, uh, the culture, 
to show how great a country is through its food, why you should visit a country through its food. But not only that, but also, as I mentioned, the history and geography and culture, even religion has to do with food. And I think when it gets to Israel, it's very interesting because we have a very interesting history and the, the religious status in Israel uh, is very interesting and diversity and all that reflects in Israeli food. So as a foodie and a diplomat, I thought this is a great way to speak about Israel. I think it's fascinating, really, because I never thought about it, but it's it's one of those duh moments. Of course you would use food in this way. And as you said, it can be used in a very formal situation, I'm sure, when government officials get together and there's a state dinner, you really do have to think about who are you inviting to this dinner and what's the right food and we don't want to do anything insulting to this country or this culture. And so there is some very formal things that you need to follow. But for the everyday person, it's it's also a great way to connect with people and, and get them to know more about your own culture having to do with how you prepare food. And there's just so many levels of it. I find it fascinating. So is there, um, would you say there's an established policy in Israel about cultural diplomacy? Are they working on that? Or is it more informal in thinking at this point? About culinary diplomacy? Yeah, I'm sorry, culinary diplomacy. Yeah. So there is not a policy. There's a policy of how you should do diplomacy, so to speak. And I think that one of the things I like about being a diplomat is that you can use many different instruments or ways of doing what you do, and it can get to what you love. You, you can connect what you love and how you work it. So when it gets to, to culinary diplomacy, there, there is no toolbox, there, there are no instructions. We do or I do it the, the way I think I should do it. And other people can use other tools. It, it can be culture. Some people use, I don't know, music. Some people are uh, uh, more connected to the technology or to healthcare or to diversity or to their own personal stories. So I think diplomacy is just the, the title, but different people do it in different ways. I see. And do you think where you're located will change the way you think about doing it? For instance... Maybe it's more subtle if it's various states in the U.S., but between the U.S. and, say, another country that you're working in, do you need to think about it in a different way, or are the principles still kind of the same and maybe the specifics are different? I think that definitely it has to do to where you are stationed in or posted in, because as a diplomat, it's not only about where you come from, where what country you represent, it's also where you are and you have to think about and you have to get to know the place uh, that you're at and then you can think about what the people care about, what's what's strong, what's interesting in this country or, or state or city and then you have to think about how you connect it. So I think I'm lucky because food is something that pretty much people everywhere like and love to talk about and love to eat and you know love to try different foods. So obviously, I'll, I'll give another example, which is not food, which is uh, uh, very uh, specific to Chicago, or to the US. So sports are very big in Chicago. So we at the consulate are trying to see how we can work with local sports teams and like doing diplomacy 
there. So we just as a very quick example, we had the Israeli ambassador to the US throwing the first pitch uh, uh, at a Cubs game. So just as an example, because we know the Cubs are huge and baseball is huge and sport is huge in Chicago and the US. Uh, so fooding is another way of doing it. So that sounds to me that not only by doing that and thinking through that process as a diplomat, not only are you representing your own country, but by really listening and understanding the culture that you're in helps you be a better diplomat because you're really listening and you have your eye on the pulse of what's going on in that community. So all around, it's, a, it's a win-win for everybody, I think. Is there a connection between Israel's economic welfare and culinary diplomacy? I don't think so. Uh, the economic uh, uh, situation might have an influence on what people eat and what people like and you know, different trends, but uh, when it gets to the diplomacy, it's, uh, we, we use something else. We take the best of uh, what we have in Israel and we try to use it as diplomats. How important do you think it is to educate the general public about Israeli food? I think that it's not important in a sense of uh, it's important for people to get to know what Israeli food is, but I think that it is important or important to me for people to get to know Israel, and I do it through food. So there are many misconceptions when I meet people here in the U.S. I know that in other countries it might be different, but here in the U.S., uh, many misconceptions about what Israeli food is. Many people think that Israeli food is what you call here Jewish food, which is basically Jewish Ashkenazi food or food of the Jews of Eastern Europe which is a part of Israeli food. It's not a big part. It's not the majority even of the food you can find and eat in Israel and the, and the food that people cook at home. And sometimes there are foods here that are considered to be Jewish and in Israel, nobody eats them or nobody cooks them. And I'll give two oh, examples. Oh, I'd love to hear Yeah, so I'd love to hear So the first one. example is bagels and bagels and locks. It was brought here by Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe. And obviously bagels today is something very American. In Israel, bagels are not really a thing. You can find bagels, they're not very good, they're not very popular. Uh, many people don't understand what's the, in Israel, don't understand what's the difference between a bagel and just a roll in the uh, shape of a bagel. The second uh, example is brisket, which is considered to be something very Jewish that, that uh, uh, you know, Jewish families cook during holidays, or Shabbat dinners in Israel, most people would not even know the name brisket. It has a very strange name in Hebrew, but people don't buy it, they don't cook it, they don't know what it is. So this is one misconception, mixing between Jewish or Jewish Ashkenazi food and Israeli food. The second one is that Israeli food has to be kosher. Obviously, in Israel, most of the places or most of the people eat kosher style, at least at home. Most restaurants, it depends where, but not most restaurants are kosher. In Jerusalem, they are. In Tel Aviv, they are not. But people in Israel uh, eat pork, not like in here, but you can find pork, you can buy pork in Israel, you can buy seafood in Israel that many people don't know that seafood, uh, like shrimps and calamari and prawns, it's not kosher, but we have it in Israel. And many people are not aware that mixing uh, meat and dairy is also not kosher. This is also something you can find in Israel. So that's the second misconception. The third one is people think of Israeli food as hummus and falafel, sometimes also shawarma, which is 
true in a way. We have it in Israel. It's very, very popular. It's a lot more popular than either brisket or bagels and locks <laughs> or uh, anything like that. But it's not only that. Obviously, hummus and falafel is not something that was created in Israel. It's uh, all over the Middle East for centuries. But Israeli food is not only that. We have modern cuisines. We have uh, fine dining restaurants. We have food from different parts of the world. And we have a lot more than just hummus and falafel. So the way I see it, one of the things that I like when I speak about Israeli food is to make people understand what is Israeli food and to make them understand that sometimes it's not what they had in mind. And so speaking of that, there seems to be a question about does Israel have its own cuisine? And some people have said, well, not really. Well, it's a young country. So is that a hindrance or is there really Israeli food? Or when somebody says that to you, what can you, how can you respond about that? So that is a big question, and I can refer, I'm sure you watched it, but I can refer the the listeners to the documentary In Search of Israeli Cuisine with uh, Michael Solomonov, who's probably the most important uh, Israeli chef. Uh, He's he's half Israeli, actually, but he has uh, has a half in Philadelphia and some other restaurants in Philadelphia. I wrote a few cookbooks. And his documentary is basically he is visiting Israel, meet uh, the leading chefs of Israel or or food personalities in Israel and ask them that question. And obviously, Israelis, they all have different answers. So I can tell you that uh, what I think or how I see it. First of all, I don't think there's an answer, a real answer, a, a true answer. And I actually, maybe it's surprising, I don't think that is important because I think that Israeli food, the way I see it, is the food people eat in Israel, people cook at their homes and eat outside, and street food and restaurant food. This is Israeli food. Israel is a very young country, 71 years old. We don't have centuries-old traditions of food because we were not there as Israel more than 71 years ago. Of course, we had the Jewish people in Israel and other places for centuries and for actually thousands of years, but there was not an Israeli cuisine a hundred years ago because there was no Israel. And so I think the question is not a yes or no question, is more of a, an, a way to open the discussion about it and, and to open the discussion about food. Obviously, as anything in Israel and anything in Israel, it also gets political. And I think I, I would quote the late Anthony Bourdain, who said there's nothing more political than food. And I definitely agree. So the question if there's, there's, there is or there isn't an Israeli cuisine also gets to politics, obviously. Um, and that's also an interesting discussion. But I think the answer that I have is that we have Israeli cuisine, which is the food that people eat in Israel in their homes and outside. So I did see that film, which is called the... In Search of Israeli Cuisine. Right, In Search of Israeli Cuisine. And if you haven't seen the film and you have a chance to see the film, you want to have food with you because when you're finished watching the movie, you're going to be really hungry. The uh, cinematography is gorgeous. The food is beautiful. You feel like you're tasting it as he goes to all these areas of, of Israel. And what I find really interesting about it, as I think about Israeli food, is you have all these people who have come to Israel, all all these immigrants that have come from all over the world, 
And so in their homes, they're cooking their own traditional foods. But to some extent, that may or may not be exactly possible because those foods might not be exactly what grows in Israel from where they came from. So there's kind of modernizing it and changing it up. And there's spices that might not be available, different spices. And so that, in a way, is part of how that cuisine is being developed, I think, which seems pretty fascinating to me. Yeah, definitely. And this is what I like about uh, food, that it shows you geographic and historic uh, processes and movement and changes. Uh, and so, as you said, many people came to Israel and uh, many Jews came to Israel from all over the world. They brought their own traditions and their own uh, dishes and foods and cuisines, but they couldn't find everything they had back in their homes in Israel. So sometimes they used local ingredients, sometimes they changed it, they modernized it. Sometimes it was influenced by their neighbors who happened to be Arabs or Druze or Jews from other places or from other countries in the world. And it brought us some very interesting uh, versions of their own cuisines and it brought, uh, brought us new foods. Uh, that you can't find in any other places, but you have something similar to it. Uh, just a quick example. There's a popular Israeli food. It's not very well known outside of Israel, and it's called sabich. Sabich is basically a sandwich in a pita, and it has eggplant, hard-boiled egg, potatoes, salads, tahina or tahini, and amba, which is pickled mango dressing. So this is a food that is based on traditional food of Iraqi Jews. And they would eat usually Saturday morning or Saturday lunch um, hard-boiled eggs and eggplants and salad and potatoes. So someone, and that's a big debate in Israel, who, who it was, someone decided to put everything in a pita and to make it a sandwich. And he called it sabich and also the, the origin of the name is also a discussion. Some people say this was someone's name, the, the inventor's name. Someone said it has to do with the word sabach, which is morning in Arabic. There are a few other uh, versions of why the name is like that. And that became an Israeli food. You can't find it in Iraq and you can't find it any other country outside of Israel. By the way, I just heard that in the Logan Square Farmer's Market, someone is selling sabich. I still didn't have the chance to try it, but maybe this is the first sabich we, we can get in, in Chicago. And that's very, very good. I like it. It doesn't sound like a lot. It sounds like pita with eggplant and, and egg, and but you should just try it and you should try it in Israel because uh, this is where it's from. But this is an example to exactly what you said. It's traditional food brought to Israel it was changed, and we're not sure even how and by who and why, uh, we can guess, but now it became an Israeli street food. Oh, I was just going to ask you about street food. So what role does that play in developing Israeli cuisine? And yeah, tell me a little bit about that. So Israel, as we discussed, is a very young country, and we used to be a poor country in the early years. Uh, we had security uh, conflicts, we had many immigrants coming, and we had to find a place for them to live and to work, and we had to feed them. So in the first decades of Israel, we were a poor country, and there were not really real restaurants. So the food that people ate outside was cheap street food. Um, like falafel, um, like hummus, sometimes shawarma. 
And this is something that you can also find in Israel today. Obviously today it, it is very modernized. We have different kinds of street food. We have a lot more choices of street food. One more example, by the way, is burekas, which is based on the Turkish or the Mediterranean burek, Turkish, Balkan, uh, Greek, you have it in many other places. Very popular in Israel. Cheap ingredients, we love it. It was there from the beginning. So definitely street food is something that you can find today in Israel. You still have these traditional dishes like falafel, like burekas, hummus, but you have very modern street food or modern takes on street food. One example is very famous chef in Israel, Eyal Shani, who sells many different types of foods in pitas, things like baked cauliflower to steaks to potatoes and sour cream and many different kinds. And he's, he was so successful in Israel that he's not only in Israel, he's now in Paris, in Melbourne and in New York, in Chelsea Market, people can try his food. It's called Miznon. That's a name in Tel Aviv and that's the name in Chelsea Market. So he took the pita, which is something very Israeli. We love pita breads. You can put everything in them and you can take it and go. And the joke is that it's not really a real pita if you don't eat it. And while you eat it, you have tahina dripping on your shirt. So that's something very Israeli. And again, it, it's also successful outside of Israel now. Maybe we could talk a little bit about Israeli chefs. Um, you just made me think about that because Mediterranean food Israeli food, I'm going to kind of lump them all together, is so popular in the U.S. now. I'm guessing it's also popular in other countries. Suddenly there's been this explosion in the last couple of years. And I wonder, how do Israeli chefs think about that? And are there other examples of chefs that have moved their restaurants or themselves and restaurants into the U.S. and other countries? So... Yes, Israeli food is becoming big outside of Israel, and obviously I'm very happy. So it happened in Europe, places like Otto Lenghi, uh, which is a former Israeli chef, and he has a, a partner who's a Palestinian, and they have a few restaurants in uh, London, very good. And now it's also happening in the U.S. So I think I have to again mention Michael Solomonov, who was the first chef to call his restaurant an Israeli restaurant and not Middle Eastern or Mediterranean. And he obviously is a great chef and he won many awards and his places are great. And that happened a few years ago and now it's becoming bigger and bigger. And there are a few famous Israeli chefs who are now also active in the U.S., mainly in New York, but not also. So I mentioned Eyal Shani, Miznon is in Chelsea Market, and he, hop he also opened his fine dining restaurant called Hasalon, also in New York City. And another famous Israeli chef, Meir Adoni, also opened in New York City a restaurant called Nur, N-U-R, uh, which is very successful. And there are other examples in New York and other places. There are also places who are not fine dining restaurants that we can find here in the U.S., like Bread's Bakery, which is a bakery in Israel, and they have a few branches in New York City. Again, they are considered to be, or they won a few awards of the best babka in New York or in the U.S., and it's really good. And that's more pastries and sandwiches and, and breads. Uh, we have the Israeli coffee chain Aroma in New York, in Miami, they have in Toronto, maybe they'll have uh, in Chicago in the, in the future. Again, coffee culture in Israel is very different than the U.S., so that's also something that we see. 
And we have local restaurants and we see that in Chicago a lot, I think more than other cities, places like Naf Naf Grill that sell food that is basically, you can call it Middle Eastern, you could call it Mediterranean, but I think that it's influenced by the Israeli version of that street food like falafel shawarma. And two last places I would like to mention, because they are both in Chicago and they are both relatively new. The first one is restaurant Galit, which opened a few months ago in Lincoln Park. Israeli restaurant, the chef uh, used to work in other restaurants, uh, other Israeli restaurants in New Orleans and other places. Still didn't have the chance to visit, but I'm very happy to have a proper Israeli restaurant here. The second place is more of an Israeli street food place. It's called Lashuk. It's in the New Politan Raw Food Hall in the West Loop, and they sell hummus, they sell falafel, and some other version of Israeli street food. It's stall inside a food hall, but it's very, very good. It, it just opened about a month ago. Oh, good to know. I haven't been to either place, but I did interview Zach before he opened his restaurant. So I've got to get there sooner than later. And hopefully some of this food will move beyond not just the big cities, but some of those places that feel kind of isolated and would love to have some of that food. And I feel like that's going to happen over time because it's really good food. So could you tell me if you had to name three of the most important foods that you connect with Israeli culture, what would those be? That's a big question. So I'll start with the obvious, which is hummus, which is something, again, that is not only found in Israel, but it's very big in Israel, and Israelis love to debate where's the best hummus, and they love to, uh, you know, fight each other on who has the best hummus, uh, like maybe like pizza here, and it's very popular in Israel, and I when I meet American people and I speak to them about hummus, I have to explain that hummus in Israel, it's a dish. It's not a dip. It's not something that you buy and dip your nachos or pita chips in. It can be a lunch. Usually it's a lunch. It's, it's not a dinner um, because it's a little heavy. And the dish is a bowl of hummus, sometimes with toppings and a pita. And you pretty much take the pita and you whip it, as we say in Hebrew, in the hummus, and that's a lunch. The second one might be surprising because it's not something that many people think about when they think about Israeli food, and that's schnitzel. So schnitzel is basically an Austrian dish of um, veal or pork fried in uh, breadcrumbs. So in Israel, again, because the first days of Israel, beef was not very common because it's more expensive and Israel is a small country, we don't grow that many cows. And pork is not kosher, so it was also not very popular and still is not very popular in Israel. So we used chicken breast uh, for schnitzel. And it's basically chicken breast, which is covered in breadcrumbs and fried. And that became a very, very popular Israeli dish. And it's something that kids love and adults love. And you can get it in street food inside a pita. You can get it in really fancy restaurants, in obviously finer versions. There are restaurants and stalls and street food uh, vendors that their expertise is schnitzel. So it's basically something that all Israeli like. And again, the Austrian version will be veal. The Israeli version is chicken breast. Um, so that's the two things that I can have in mind for Israeli foods. So what's your favorite Israeli food? I don't think I have an answer for that. I really love, love 
many different types of Israeli foods. My recent visit to Israel was this April and ate, I think, hummus I ate five times, but I also had sabich, I had shawarma. I went to some restaurants, by the way, not only Israeli restaurants. I, I went to also a Thai restaurant in Israel. I went to a Turkish restaurant in Israel. I love the coffee in Israel, by the way. And um, I think uh, uh, we have very good coffee in Israel, which I can speak about a lot. And I like the fact that the food in Israel tends to be very fresh. Lots of fruits and, veg and vegetables, um, less use of butter and fat, more use of olive oil, less beef or pork, and more chicken. So, you know, this is what I grew up eating. So this is what I like the most. But I also like to go to Israel and eat different kinds of cuisines in Israel. Makes sense. Um, before we say goodbye, you and I talked a little before this. I generally ask my guests if they're willing to share a recipe. And you, of course, were very generous and said yes. Do you want to talk a little bit about the recipe you're going to share? Yes, so the recipe is a version of hummus. Um, so people usually know hummus as uh, smooth, uh, it's blended. Basically hummus, it's not a big secret, hummus is a dish that is basically made of two main ingredients, chickpeas and tahini. Obviously you add some spices, you add lemon, you add garlic, you can add toppings on top, but the main hummus is basically tahini and chickpeas. So one version of hummus that I like because it's easier to make at home, you don't need a blender, a blender is a version that is called mesabacha, and this is an Arabic word, and this is what the people in central Israel call it. In northern Israel, in the Arab communities in northern Israel, they call it mashausha, and that's the same thing. Basically, it's hummus that is not blended smooth, and the chickpeas are still whole. They are mashed lightly. Sometimes they are not mashed at all. There are a few versions of it mixed with tahini. So basically you take tahini, you put some warm chickpeas, cooked warm chickpeas on top. You mash it a little bit. I do it with potato masher and you can do it at home. Uh, it's very easy. And you add some toppings on top, spices and olive oil. You eat it with pita or a good bread um, that you can dip it inside. And that's a very easy way of making hummus at home. And that's, you, you can say that can be an introduction to make hummus at home, uh, because after you do that, you can, if you want, continue and do the real thing using a blender, uh, uh, which can be a little harder. But also, hummus is a very simple dish. It sounds really good. Could you give me an example of what some popular toppings would be? So, I like when I do it at home, I don't add something like a protein or, so, or something that is a dish of its own. I just add olive oil and it should be high quality olive oil because you put a lot and then you actually taste it. And some spices, I use cumin, you can use paprika, and a little bit salt, you can use sumac, also gives it a, a, a nice color. And, but you can put some falafels on top, you can put fried mushrooms or onions, you can put different kinds of meats. I like to leave it like that because I think that I like to taste the real taste of it. But people can do whatever they want. It can be very, they can be very creative. They can use it as a canvas for something on top as long as it does not shadow the taste of hummus. So you can be inventive and enjoy this amazing recipe. So I'm going to encourage people to, to go to the website and 
check it out. Well, I want to thank you so much for being my guest and taking time out of your busy day to talk with me. And I hope we get to come up with some other topics in the future so that we can talk together again. I want to give a big shout out to Spurtis Institute for Jewish Learning and Leadership, the location of my day job. And they've provided space for me to record this interview today. And I want to thank you for listening to The Big Schmear. Our recording engineer is Grayson Elliott Taylor, and the editor and mix engineer is Steve Robinson. The Big Schmear theme music is performed by Cavatino Duo from their CD entitled Sephardic Journey on the CD record label. If you have any questions or want to share program ideas, I'd love to hear from you. Please send your email to beth at thebigschmear.com. And be sure to check out my website, thebigschmear.com, to find this recipe and others from my guests. I'm Beth Schenker, the host of The Big Schmear. Thank you for listening, and happy eating.